0: there, welcome to or welcome back to the Shift Control Podcast. Uh, My name is Paul McAnallon, thanks for joining me. Um, Today's episode was recorded at the Ormo Baths in Belfast City Centre. The Ormo Baths are a brand new co-working tech space, um, right in the heart of the city. It's a fantastic facility for those people who are in the startup space who are entrepreneurs and who want a a sort of cost-effective, hub for networking, to do business, um, to download high level intel from other people and to get the odd opportunity of funding. Um, it's all really uh, gathered together in one brilliant space. Perfect location to interview Oliver Lennon. Um, Oliver is um, hates the title of entrepreneur, but he has had uh, already one very successful startup under his belt um, as CEO of SpeechStorm. And as he moves into his second startup, Um, It's a really brilliant opportunity to get talking to him about um, the pitfalls, opportunities, threats, learnings, about setting up your own business in the tech space um, with the view to working globally based here in the North. So I hope you enjoy it um, and I will chat to you later. Oliver, thanks for joining me Um, today. We're here in um,
1: the Ormo Bath. This is your new home for the next while. That's right, Paul. Um, Pleasure to be with you. Uh... Thanks for the opportunity to to have a chat.
0: So we we have talked with this for a while. Um, I, I had a little bit of research to try and find out about your new venture, which I wanted. Uh, hopefully, you'll talk about. Um, yep. But this is a pretty this is a new space for Belfast, and it's a, a kind of a thriving home for startups. That's what's bringing up.
1: Yeah, to bring to you here. I mean, I think that's the that is the rationale behind the armovels. That I think it's a space that Belfast has has required. Um, while there are. Spaces for some of the uh, incubation programs. There's nothing for, um, you know, early stage startups who just maybe want a desk and want to work with like-minded people, and, and not get caught up in the commercial five-year lease uh, approach that that most organisations or most organisations renting property tend to look for. So I, I think there's two-fold element to it. It's, it's a great place for early stage startups from a commercial perspective, but it's also bringing together quite a lot of people in a similar boat. So. Um, Hopefully I will learn, I've been through this before, but every day is a learning day so hopefully I'll learn from some of the other companies in here in terms of what they're trying to achieve and and hopefully vice versa that any any bits that I've been through before maybe will resonate with some of the other guys in here as well, so it's it's a great opportunity, yeah. So you come with a fair degree of experience
0: and um, SpeechStorm was your last project?
1: Yeah, a project probably would be in the right term. Um, (laughs) Did I say that project wrong? Successful project? Sorry, sorry. Well, success is relevant, but yes, it it, it was. So um, SpeechStorm was the last venture I had the privilege of of starting up and and running for six years. So we set myself and a couple of other co-founders set the company up in 2009. Probably at the time when you shouldn't start up a new company, given the uh, yeah. we're now in the ten year anniversary. I heard on the radio this morning of the uh, of the financial crisis and the, oh. the Northern Bank, etc. Um, but in 09 I had been working part out, Spent a quite a number of years with Canos, running various elements of, of the business within Canos. Um, but I'd always had a, a hankering to uh, to do my own thing, and um, opportunity arose to to set up Speechstorm. At that time, we were still part of Canus, um, this for the concept to come out of. Um, we decided to try and uh, build on what we were starting, what we had done for about six months at that stage within Kinos. Um We decided the best way to do that was as a separate entity. Um, so we went on the the road to look for some funding um, to get the company off and running, which we were successful in getting a funder on board, a VC, and the. We, we kicked off in earnest in February 2010. Um, many ups and downs, many good times, some bad times, but I would say if I were, if I were to chart a straight line through the, the, the evolution of SpeechStorm from, from 09 through to 2015, whenever we actually got acquired by a, a Silicon Valley based company called Genesis, um, the chart was always on an upward curve, and I just don't mean that from a growth, I mean from an enjoyment, from a learning, from a growth, there were definitely dips, there is no question about that, but um, uh, by and large it was always an upward curve, and I suppose that's what's driven me to uh, throw my hat into the ring and do it do it all over again. Um,
0: how do you get, how, do you, how does a company like Space Storm, um, that's uh, I wouldn't say Belfast based, but just geographically say yeah, Belfast based, how, how do you get on the, on the radar of a global? West Coast organisation like Jess? What, what yeah.
1: Because that um, that's what everybody, everybody here has aspirations for exactly that, right? Uh, yes, I would guess. I mean, obviously, I suppose there's a few things. Um, right from the get-go or from the outset, we had always had an aspiration to be global. Um, the space we operated in was in the contact centre space, so we had a platform that uh, allowed organisations to connect easily to their customers over the voice platform or the voice uh, network, um, which fitted very well into the contact centre space. But the, the mission statement, if you want, that we come up with at the ISTEP was our software, every contact centre globally. And that was a genuine belief, that's what we wanted to achieve. Now this is a bit like uh, aim for the clouds and you reach the highest peak. Uh, approach. Um, so we had an aspiration to, I think that's one of the key things, first of all, have, have a desire and aspiration to be global. Uh,
0: Who gave validation to the mission statement? What clients did you end up working with?
1: Um, well, the sorts of clients we ended up with um, locally and uh, look, I mean UK in Ireland. We had the likes of Aircom, the likes of Sky, the likes of uh, H3G, the mobile operator, beyond that. Uh, Interior, we were working with the likes of FedEx, um, Emirates Airlines out of the Middle East, uh, Rack Bank, another Middle Eastern co- uh, company out of Dubai, uh, U.S. Postal Service nationwide in the U.S., um, banks in Mexico, like the Norte, uh, so we had a, uh, I think we, we, we did reach all continents. which uh, and accomplished uh, then. Yeah, accomplished. well done. No, well done. We, we didn't get to 100% of our software, every contact center globally, but we made good progress along the way. Um, I suppose, you know, how, how do you get there, certainly having that aspiration is key. Um, I think knowing your market and knowing the dynamics of your market and how people buy in your market is critical for us let me cut in there right so just focus on that because the the idea of
0: these the podcasts i, I suppose are really around the area of business development and uh, aligning we talked about this before we went on our about taking uh, a really really uh, strong We've got the vision, the mission, you've got a really strong message and it's how you articulate that and communicate that with those customers. What was that particular part of the process
1: like, you know, the actual selling of it? The selling of it, I mean, it's a a moving piece, but I think even prior to the selling, it's, it's how, you know, it's probably that first question you were getting at. How do you get to that market? Because unless you can get there and unless you can get in front of those customers, unless you know how to get in front of those customers, then you can't sell no matter how good your story is because clearly they won't hear that story. So I think the first step is to understand the dynamic of that market, how the buyers operate, so who do they buy from? So whenever we looked at our market, we go, well, clearly our technology is bounded in in the contact center space. So how do organizations and our target customer, how will they buy in that space? Um, They do a couple of things. They'll actually go and talk to some of the large analysts, Alexa Gartner and Forrester, and they'll go, well, what's the latest technology? Um, they will typically then get pointed to some of the big tech vendors, like so Cisco or VIA or Genesis. Uh, the customer will then typically go and talk to one of those tech vendors and say, well, tell me about your technology and how that can help in my contact center space. The customer will then typically go to some sort of systems integrator and say, well, we've chosen this technology, let's say a Genesis technology, we want you to implement that technology. So it was clear, it was obvious to me that if we wanted to get into that sales cycle, we needed to have a partnership with one of the tech guys. Yeah. And when you look at the market, three tech companies um, dominated the market, Genesis, Cisco and Avaya. So they had circa 70% of the global market. Now they were selling large platforms and, and many, many things. So our objective became very quickly, how do we actually buddy up with one of these? Which one should we do? And, and how do we get in, involved in part of their sales cycle? So that's what drove pretty much right to our to our exit. Not deliberately as an exit, but how we evolved our market, how we got in front of the likes of Bupa or Nationwide or Benarte in Mexico. Three, the two three the three horse partnerships. <laughs> now, uh-huh. again, partnerships evolve in many ways, and you can spend lots of time actually having wonderful partnership agreements that take you two years to document and write and they actually deliver precious little out of. And again the key thing for us in the partnership then was looking at and it's all selling okay you're not selling to an end customer in this case we were selling to the partner why should they take our piece of technology how did it complement what they had and how could they it make the whole greater to so how could we add value to their overall proposition. Yeah. So we were able to identify effectively a gap in their portfolio and we were able to say, well, if, if you add our technology on top of what you already have, we come up with a metric that for every dollar of our technology you sell, you'll sell $10 of your own. Now, it wasn't totally scientific, but it was enough to get the interest going, but tell me how, that, how could that happen or why would that operate? We were able to articulate Now, I'm making this sound simple. This took two and a half, three years to actually to come through fruition. And a lot of it was done through personal relationships. So we started locals. So we started with the guys. The partner we chose, by the way, was Genesis, um, and the reason we chose them was because we had some personal relations with them, so that was the logical place to start, um, and we moved it through the, the evolution of a partnership, not focusing on the partner agreements, but more focusing on the key thing to me was how can I get their sales guys compensated to sell our software, because if I don't get that, if they're not getting paid for it in some shape, form or fashion, yeah. it's not going to happen regardless of how good the partnership agreement was. So, uh, but it yeah. took us the best part of, you know, two to three years to get to that situation. We went through lots of iterations. In, in parallel, we, we, of course, I mean, uh, again, it, it's not a case of rocking up to a partner in, in Silicon Valley and saying, here, we're from Speech Drum, we're, let that say, we're whatever, 10 people or something, and we've got the, the greatest piece of technology, because you're not going to get listened to. Yeah. So it's a parallel strategy that, that works, so we were doing a lot of direct selling locally. We were doing direct selling into the same accounts that they were based. Okay. we were pairing up with our sales guys and saying well this will make your sale a lot easier and they started to see the evidence because we had a value proposition to the end customer the end customer was able to see the value and appreciate the value um, but it made it easier for them to buy it through the larger tech company so it removed it's... some of the issues around scale and yeah. the size that we were at that time
0: so, you, you, you're basically, you've identified Genesis as your go to partner. You're yeah. trying to sell at board level or trying to create relationships over the West Coast, but uh, at the same time.
1: Y- yeah, it, it's a, a multi layered, you know, you have to create relationships at every level. Um, when well, you mean, set out, though, you
0: didn't sort of set out, and, and your funders were saying, that, Right, lads, it's going to be three years. Are, are you with
1: me? Or did uh-huh. you, do you think it was going to take. I, I probably months? said it was going to be about three months, but well, not quite three months, but. Um, you would have had a, uh, a, a shorter a, time, time. horizon for yeah, sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Now, in, in fairness, while the execution of the plan over the period uh, uh, changed, the actual end goal, how we went about it, stayed pretty similar. I mean, we always said we were going to go to market by partners. Here's the partners we we're going to target. Here's the first one we're going to target. This is how we're going to target them. Um, so that, that general plan stayed the same. Yeah. The, the detail of that over weeks, and months, and quarters did change. Um, and we eventually, before we ultimately we were acquired by Genesis, um, but prior to acquisition we had started to work with a number of the other partners as well. Because again that was, you know, looking at the partner landscape, Genesis at that stage had 20% of the market so we were looking at well, how do we expand, yeah. you know, there's only so much you can do within one partner and, and there was an awful lot more we could do with Genesis but we were really looking at well, how can we do more with Cisco and Avaya and some of the other up and coming tech partners as well. So they- getting third party or channel
0: sellers interested and, and really really invested in that that's not easy
1: it's, it's not easy and i said it, it, it certainly has to be a, a multi-layered approach it's not a case of selling yeah. at a board level um it doesn't it out doesn't of the board no, in, in the early days you know we, we didn't know any execs within genesis at all uh, we were more focused on individual specific deals on the ground with specific customers yeah and it's almost let you know. Was this a deliberate approach? It probably was, but it was sort of implicit. For us, it was just a natural thing to do. You know, if we can get the the guys on the ground who are selling their tech in the partner world to become evangelists, albeit in a small space, and you sort of grow that out over time, then it will filter up. And then yes, you need to start to make contacts at a higher level to make sure if there's blocks such as. Um, we can no longer sell this product because it's not a certified product. So the next thing is, how can we get onto the a certified product? How can we get onto the price list? And that's when you need to start to inject at the different levels. But I think not doing that, you, you could spend a lot of time, yeah. you could spend months and years actually getting certifications and getting. Um, Engagement with the senior team only to realize that the guys in the ground are not going to sell it or there's no value to the customer or the I'm customer sees no value in the proposition. So I think getting that value from the, from the customer in the first instance and getting the partner sales team at a, at a local level bought into it and expanding out, that, that, that certainly worked for us. Because
0: when you think about it, like there's everything, everything in life is really complex if you look at it in real detail and you know everything they can especially in the sales process where you're selling into a board and you've got a cto or cmo or COO, you've got buy-in and they move you know you spend a year working in yeah. one guy or you spend working on the sales team and a new sales director comes in and repoints them or a company gets bought out there's a lot of stuff outside of your control you have to have a lot of faith that the message is right where it really matters and that's for the customer
1: yeah and i think you have to have belief yeah. in what you're selling in the value proposition um, and I think this is where it comes down, the thing, I think you, you mentioned that the concepts are just the product market fit and to me that is a key, how do you articulate your story, so to articulate your story in a, in a believable way you have to believe it yourself because yeah. I think it becomes, we're all human, most people become transparent very quickly if they're talking BS, yeah. um, so unless you believe your own story um, you can't articulate it properly. So if you believe your own storage, you think you have something of value, you then get into the position of articulating a property. And I think that's certainly for, for me in the past, that's where the product market fit comes in. When you stand in front of a customer and you can talk about their pain points and you can say and if we can do this for you, would that solve? And they say yes. And you run through three or four or five points and you can do it without PowerPoint or you can do it without demo okay, and you have the customer nodding, then you know you've got a product market fit. Absolutely. Now, how do you get yeah. there in the long term? I'm not, yeah. not entirely sure for the process, might do, yeah. But that's to me—that's the definition of product market fit, as opposed to—is there a market for the product I'm selling here? Yeah. Uh, we were chatting offline before. I think you need to have a fair degree of confidence that there is a market for the product before you even start to create it. That's the ticket to enter. Like that, That's the take advantage. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I think that um, uh, the thing about your the value proposition and, and um, you know being able to faith and belief. Or things that if you if you can't sell without confidence, you know no matter how competent you are, this guy um, t- I can't remember who it is talks about competent com- competent confidence. So again, a ticket entry is that you're competent, yeah. but you have to be confident in your articulation of that, and you have to fully understand the pain point. It's not uh, good enough anymore to just to be talking about features and benefits. Yeah. Look what it does, isn't it great? What oh, is interested in that? It's how does it work for me? How does it make me
1: feel? Um, I agree, agree totally. I mean Features and benefits are, again, they're, they're table stakes and you're comparing against your, your competitors. Yeah. And they, do you have feature X or, or benefit Y? And, and you have to do those and you have to articulate those. Um, but it, again, it's table stakes. One of the things we had did at one stage, um, this was during the speech storm days, we were trying to understand well, why are our customers buying from us? So what, what is the secret sauce? We, we believed it was our product, we believed it was this, but we didn't. So we thought, well actually let's validate them with some data. So we got an external party to come in and they interviewed probably about fifteen of our customers at that stage. A small sample survey granted. Um, but the so bear in mind we you know we were a small company, even when uh, at Exit we were still small, but we were around twenty people, maybe less at that stage. Um, we had a few customers in the UK and Ireland, I think we met in one or two in Europe. Um, we were fairly big brands that we were dealing with, um, so this was how can a small company based out of Belfast? Why are these guys buying what we have? So we got we got a third party to interview them, and the overriding feedback was they liked the people they dealt with, yeah. they trusted the people they dealt with. Yes, the product ticked the boxes; it did, it had the functionality, it, it helped drive a business case for them. But that was taken as, "Well, you're selling me something; i would assume that it's going to do with you what it, you know." What it needs to do to solve my problem but the differentiator comes down to the people that they were dealing with not just at a sales level or a senior level but, but anyone that dealt with in the organization and that was one of the key if not right. the overriding key issue why these organizations were buying from us at that point. So the, um, the, the
0: in, uh, in my head it's always been sales and marketing are the same thing uh, they're not the same thing they're like a partnership to the same thing towards yeah. the same thing so sales is influence and persuasion and marketing and storytelling. We talked about that before we come online as well. And in influence, um, when you're trying to persuade, there are two routes to persuasion. One's the central route, and the other is the peripheral route. And the central route is the facts. We do this, we do that, we do the other. We're great, save you time, save you money. And then the peripheral route is what people used to call soft skills, right? You know, I was really good to people, you know, he's I'm a, a really nice person and he's got all this integrity. The soft skills now are becoming the hard skills, they're becoming more and yeah, more important yeah. because ultimately everything is copyable. Everything can be copied apart from the people that deal with that stuff you're trying to sell. And it's about being able to establish trust really quickly yeah. and establish those relationships that I think are really, really important that people are becoming I more and
1: You're about. right, I mean, and, and soft skills isn't this no more because they are hard skills and I think there is an innate element to it, you know, I think you are either good with people and in some cases you're you're just not. Now you can certainly work to overcome, and I do it all the time, do your inhibitions or your fears, and don't get me wrong, every time you walk in to meet a customer or a prospect or or someone you're selling to, which is probably 99% of the time, you get a degree of nervousness um, and you work on techniques to actually overcome those. Um, But I, I think if you have that underlying ability to be open and frank and honest with people and genuine then... People see that very very quickly, and, and and you can't you can't fake it. No, no better word. You know you can't.
0: No, you can't. I think like everybody suffers from imposter syndrome, and the, one of the big fears is being found out, and the other fear is that you never truly realise how great you are. I've done that all the time, and I <laughs> I,
1: I I think ninety nine percent of people suffer from the imposter yeah. syndrome. You know, I, I, am I really am I? You know, Got a title, whatever that title, and I've had some long titles and big titles and all that. But at the end of the day, it's, it's you know what you're doing is is basic stuff in many regards and it's just about being clear, being honest. It depends what role you're in. If you're in a leadership role, it's about being clear and open with the people you're you're trying to lead. I was reading the piece in that um, the book about the All Blacks legacy. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know if you read it, but it's again a fascinating book around how the All Blacks have gone around. And Graham Henry's view on leadership was leaders are teachers. You know, that, that's that, right. that was as simple as, as he would put it. So as a leader you have to be able to teach and you have to be able to the other key thing that I took from reading from that book was the empowerment piece, which is and I think that's a, a, I know we're straying off topic, but I think a, a thing that's often lacking in a lot of companies in leadership is that empowerment piece. And I've seen it and I, I fight against it myself, so it's trusting others to do yeah. what you know you can do yourself. And and ultimately for startup companies and for founders that's one of the biggest hurdles you have to overcome because whenever you start something up it's precious to you you know it intimately you live it you breathe it and as you grow over months and years you have to empower others and the reality is they're never going to get it as good as you or your co-founders that's the reality but you have to trust that they're going to do a good job, and they're going to do it to the best of their abilities. But it's, it's psychologically, it's a very difficult thing for. You're going to be a long practice. time
0: waiting for somebody to come along who's as good as you. And you're your never head. going to. Rep it. And okay. I think
1: that's you know it's one of the the hurdles that, that all startups and any early stage companies is that um, that empowerment and, and that sort of handing off and thrusting others, and then we struggle with it, and I'm sure. This time around you know i can even see it in the early stages of we've just recruited a couple of guys and we're you know we're trying to give them the freedom to do stuff and you're thinking actually it's, that's not the way you should be doing it yeah you have to check yourself yeah. go, you know what trust
0: so so yeah and it's a really it kind of brings the conversation sort of back to the very start when we talk about what's available here because whenever you were setting up speedstorm you probably had a lot of support and uh, infrastructure in and around from the Kanos time. But people are coming here right now and they're going, I've got this great idea and I've now got a bit of money. But what they also have is the intellect and the, the people around the infrastructure to create stability. Because with success comes a greater challenges of scaling up, uh, buying, procurement, facilities. And all of a sudden, this dream of in a startup now becomes a nightmare. Yeah.
1: And, and you know, I think, yes, the likes of the Armour Ball is starting to facilitate some of that. What I would call infrastructural pieces, you know, not having to worry about um, how to rent an office or, or how to set up a tech. Because as a startup, you don't want to be focused or worried about that. And the reality is, in, in the startup world, a lot of those, what you would call minutiae, take up a significant chunk of your time. So if you can go into an environment like this and you can focus not 100% of your time, but a significant proportion of your time in terms of all of the critical things. I mean one of the um, one of the books I remember reading I'll go probably a number of years ago I think it's called the Four Disciplines of Execution, I don't know if you come across it. This concept of wildly important goals. Mm-hmm. So it's around uh, you know, the talk about in the in the world of, of of doing things or starting up or doing there's lots of priorities there's lots of things. Um, but the success and the successful of the successful organizations identify the widely important goals, the things that are really going to make a difference. Everything's important, but can you identify, and they record, two or three widely important goals, yeah. and that becomes your North Star, yeah. and you drive everything. And we actually took that concept within SpeechStorm, and we, we used it, and it did become our become our guiding principle, not only from uh, uh, the early start, said so we took on investment, so we had institutional investors, so we had a managing up exercise, But we also, as we grew, we took on more people at senior and junior levels. So we always had also a managing down and managing sideways. So we used that as a mechanism to get everybody bought into the, where are we going? Why are we doing this particular thing? And we tried to use it as a mechanism to say no, because again, one of the lessons I've learned, one of the most difficult things to do in any environment, particularly in in an early stage company is say no, Mm -hmm. because you can. In a tech world you can pretty much build anything and sometimes a customer says to you could you do this and you're thinking "Oh, there's a piece of revenue at the back of it so I should do it Um, or Gartner says the market's going in this direction in the next two years so we really should be doing more of that mobile stuff or more of that cloud stuff Um, and I think you get caught into that so the ability to say actually no we have a core focus, we're going in this direction. That's what we need to, to continue. I, mean, I think things like, certainly for us, using the, the widely important goals was a good mechanism to, to align everyone, but also to keep a focus on what was important for us.
0: Completely. like It's funny you say that when I was working with a, um, a business ages ago that specialised in data storage, and um, it, it had just, you know, customers were saying, you know, coming back and saying, oh, it's great, but would it, could you do this? And maybe what if it would do that? And what if it would do something else? and. You can see how the Swiss Army knife evolved, you know. Yeah, yeah. You know, the Swiss Army aren't really all that great, and I'm sure that they don't, when a push comes to shove, they don't pull out the knife, you know. Yeah. And you can't be jack of all trades and master of all trades. You have to be really focused, and that, that probably takes a lot of faith. That faith in your management, faith in, in your strategy, faith in the people around you, and faith in your partners and the direction. Yeah,
1: it, it does. But equally, the, the other side of that is you, you can't be blind, you know, you can't also shoot yourself into a room for three years and say, well, we were going to build X because that's what our, uh, our vision is. Only yeah. to find out, you know, six months or 12 months in the market is completely shifted. And that's right. You're completely tangential to it. So there, there is a the balance, but I, I think the overriding thing has to be, yes, I agree with you, having belief in terms of what you have, the people that you have and, and where you're going and trying to stick, you'll meander mm-hmm. for sure, but trying to stick to that general Half is key. What?
0: what I I told you I was going to ask you this question later on, but it's. So what a bit, the hard ones? Is it? Paul? No, no, no. <laughs> they're all easy. Um, well, this page is easy. No. Um, <laughs> the, what? What lessons would you like to have? What, what? lessons would you teach yourself now? Given what you've done, and we'll talk about the new startup in, in a moment. But right now, where you sit now, what, what? would you love to have been taught? Like you know, ages ago, that, that well, would definitely um, have changed your goodness. direction. Uh,
1: I don't know whether, but ch- I, I suppose if, I think you you said earlier what's the advice you would give the younger me. Um, yeah, you asked that question better than me. Right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I suppose one. that advice would be do it earlier. Um, what but, do you back, like or what, what, what? Um, maybe confidence. Um. I I don't know actually, and and I think it's like everything, and it's maybe it's not maybe I'm pretty sure it's one of the issues that we have in this part of the world. It's the uh, the comfort factor. It's the um, you know whatever it is. The stats is sixty seven percent of the population employed are employed, or or indirectly, indirectly in the public sector, or you know, if that is true, or it's of that ilk, or that proportion, then you have. The pseudo public sectors, I would call them, the large corporates, have another big chunk. So most people employed in those areas, or public sector, or large corporates, there's a comfort blanket. So and you get ingrained into a way of doing things and become much easier in life, while you're working hard and there's pressure. Um, jumping out to do something new or different or uh, thinking in, in three months or six months, we might not have enough money to pay the payroll. Yeah, um, what the hell do I do now? Um, so that takes confidence. Um, so maybe that held me back, and you get into a, a comfort zone, I think. But certainly, the one advice I would give to a younger mate, and I wish I was younger, <laughs> uh, as we all do, <laughs> but the waistline is telling me I'm not, <laughs> um, is it, definitely do it earlier. Um, yeah. I, I suppose that's. That be part of the reason why I'm jumping on the, uh, on the on the train again is actually uh, I I just feel if I don't do it now I, you know in five or ten years time I might do it again so I just think keep doing it while you enjoy it I enjoy it uh, yeah. it, it comes with risks um, learn some things through the way um, and I'm sure I'll make plenty more mistakes. Um, but certainly, doing things, doing it earlier or, or jumping earlier into a, into the startup world would have been would have been one of the pieces of advice. Um, Was well, a different
0: landscape now for jumping in? Because I think it is. Two thousand and nine, like this wasn't here. No, this, you no know, true, the, the technology true. that we use, podcasts, you know, even the the way we source information, we can maybe. A question I would ask is: Who would you see as somebody you look up to um, in in the wider business circle? But. You would have been talking about Richard Branson nine years ago now. There's a thousand, hundreds of thousands of it other it, people.
1: It probably is, although I've, I suppose I've never, I don't, you know, this has not been kind. Cond- I've never really looked up to others per se in, in that sort of sense, i.e. the Richard Branson. I've learned a lot from people as I've gone, gone through um, through life. I've, I think I've learned a lot from sport. It's probably one of my guiding lights. I, I think sport is a great... Um, window onto to life. So, how you see people operating in, in a sporting environment, and I take that from kids right through to adults, is a re- gives you a really good insight into how they operate in yeah. their personal life and in their business life. So, I've used sport and, and sports people as a, as a great guiding uh, in terms of uh, leadership roles. You know, if you look at rugby players, the likes of the more modern, the Paul O'Connells and those guys, Richie McCauff and all blacks that take the likes of Hurling, um, yeah. Henry Shefflin. So looking at those sort of guys and how they applied themselves themselves, sorry, to to winning a game or the dedication to put into to training, so the um, The Mountain and Gladwell book. I don't know if you've read it. I think he used the term somewhere else. The ten thousand hours of so that comes from
0: that comes from a guy called Mark Anders Anderson. I get his name wrong. He's a Scandinavian uh, professor who's working out of the Miami State Uni or University of Miami, and he basically was the guy who engineered this ten thousand hours deliberate practice, deep practice, or purposeful practice, and um, you know. All of that sounds great. I coach people, sales people using that model exactly and they're scared shipless of it because it all says hard work. Mm-hmm. Because yeah, yeah. You, you use anybody, um, a great old black was what Richie McCall wanted to be, told by his yeah. father, GAB, Yes, because he was a fat kid, but he wasn't. He was just a small child, he wasn't ready yet. But you said, to, I did it as recently as yesterday. We were talking about the seven or eight fundamentals of deep practice or like the word deliberate practice, it kind of gives it away. You have to do stuff deliberately designed to improve. You have to enjoy coaching. Most people don't like when told they're not doing it right. It typically has to be not fun. Yeah. And, and there's all these different dynamics. But I,
1: I think you're at the nub of all of these things, and that's why I like the analogy to sport. It takes hard work. Well, unbelievably. And, and so, that's yeah. a, that's yeah. the bottom line. And if you're not prepared to put the hours in, and it's the same in any facet of life, it's the same in business. Um, so that's why I would look at, at sporting people who have achieved, um, not even so much the people who have seen the achieved greatness, but anybody in a sporting field. As suppose other people who have influenced me, I, I was fortunate to work with the likes of Frank Graham who was the original founder of yeah. Um and I learned a lot from Frank and I still would keep in contact with Frank in terms of how to lead with complete and utter honesty and transparency um, and that was one of Frank's greatest attributes. Um, you implicitly trust Frank, um, and I think he just come across as, as as someone you would believe and you would trust. He was meticulous to a level of detail in terms of spelling and and, yeah. and grammar, etc. And again, I I would that type of thing would resonate with me. Yeah. The level of detail. Yeah. So I, I've I've learned things from people, um, but no, I I don't have a great. Uh, um, God that I follow in sense of the business world that, that I think it's back to what we said it's all personal it's yeah. all around you know who you are and what's authentic to you um, so I think what we other we learned is to sort of segue you know as a startup and I remember in the early stages of, of Space Drum, we were going through the how do we make ourselves look something other than we are i.e. a small company out of Belfast yeah. so we had great marketing plans and we had great uh, probably brochure were at that time less so now um, and we sort of got to the rea- and it was around about the time we had interviewed and talked to the customers we come to the realisation actually being from Belfast being a tech company being small was was no barrier actually we could use it to our advantage yeah. Yeah. Um, what was the important thing was more who we were how we what we were selling and how genuine we are and what we were doing so we actually took the because I, I, maybe less so now, but in those days it was more around, you know, could you make yourself seem as if you had a, an office in London? So we used to do the classical thing, you know, we, we had a Regis office and we had, a, we, had a, the, the, we had a Glasgow office, we had a London office, I don't think we went to the New York side of things. Um, on the basis we would look global and yeah. we would look a lot better. And We reverted to it, we ended up, um, we still kept it to the end, uh, as part of our letter. Have we said proudly from Belfast. Uh, and we ended up running, um, we called them storm gathering, it was part of the great marketing strategy we had, yeah, Space yeah, Storm, yeah, Storm yeah. Gathering, customer yeah. events, I and mean, we took customers from all over Europe to Belfast. We took them on black taxi tours. We, we showed off, we were proud of who we were, what because that was part of what we delivered, our heritage, uh, how we built things, the engineering disciplines, that is really good in this part of the world. So I, I, I think sort of taking something which on face, you might see as a negative small company from Belfast. Don't mention it. Um, to turning that into yeah. a positive and, and a way of selling and a part of selling of who you are. So. Well,
0: you, you, some of the language that you use is really interesting. That's whole sort of striving for authenticity. You know, this. You know, from leadership to top down, everything's authentic. So it is what it is. Um, you know, you can talk about. Belfast. Belfast was big enough for ships to come out of. Belfast was big enough for land. Right. Belfast was big enough for everything. Belfast is big enough for bad news. Belfast is big enough for good news. Yeah. You know, it kind of it's. But why is, the, why is
1: Silicon Valley any, any better than yeah. Belfast? You exactly. know? it's just not it's a piece yeah. of land exactly. that happens to have people in it that have a, a certain mindset. That, yeah. That's the difference. You know. Yeah. So and I, I think this sort of let's not talk about where we're from or or, the part of the world we're from. Yeah. that actually reinforces the negative element that reinforces how you then go out to market and it, it's a, it should be a complete announcement at most I, I think it is now and I think we've moved beyond that um, I, would have, I would have thought differently going back
0: maybe not so long ago I would have thought that you know geographically pigeonholing yourself if it had no real benefit then don't do it, I would have genuinely thought mm-hmm. that but the way you've articulated that the fact that you talk about you know, um, if, you're pro- if, you're, if you're from the and you're really proud of it just don't, don't be afraid to say it. Yeah. If it, if it if it has some kind of yeah. resonance and it, it, oh, oh, it's part of it's your brand,
1: brand yeah, story yeah, right. and, and certainly should not pigeonhole yourself into this you know we operate in, the, in a small space in a yeah. small market or whatever. so it's not about that it's about and it's about we talk about this off air it's about the story it's how you articulate the story so we were able to weave that into the story of who we are and why we built what we did build, what value it had what values that we as people and we as a company had and that was all part of the the yeah. interwoven story, if you want, rather than trying to have like, a part of the story was really authentic, and then this other part that says, "and we've got offices in London and New York," but yeah. reality is we didn't. That's your second lie. <laughs> <laughs> unique selling points is your
0: first, and your second one is exactly. like globally located. Like, yeah. Just on, on this, on the idea of um, your brand story. So, Sandeo, what's the brand story behind the new
1: startup? But well, Sundeo is, is, is new, it, it is really clean slate, it's um, literally uh, going a matter of weeks or even months. Um, so the idea around Sundeo is, is I mean, I've been operating in the space of customer service for probably more years than I care to remember, um, but the, the concept is around targeting the next generation of consumers or the new generation of consumers and allowing an organisation to deal with them or to contact them to help resolve their queries in a manner that they're used to. Um, the much used Generation Y and Generation Z, Millennials, um, are used to dealing with each other over their mobile device, over their messaging platform, Snapchat, um, WeChat, Facebook, um, iChat, Instagram. That's how they communicate with each other. So Sondale's a platform will open that up to enterprises to allow them across messaging platform, to allow them to communicate and deal providing right, customer service with their customers over those messaging platforms. That's the intent. Um, we're also building an element of, of crowdsourcing, which is another uh, much-vaunted tech term, should we say. Um, but the concept is simple, it's sort of allowing uh, other consumers, other users t- to help, or sorry, allowing consumers to connect to other users or other consumers to help solve their problems. Social proof, uh, in a way. It's a bit of like TripAdvisor model, it's around, so I talk about the the Holy Trinity, you want to bring religion into it, so you have the consumer, you have a a crowd of other consumers who are experts, and you have the organisation. If you can connect those three together to provide a much better customer experience over a modality that those customers are used to using, their their mobile device, then that should do two things for the organisation and for the consumer. It should drive down the cost of servicing, which is always a key thing. But it should also increase the customer experience um, that, they, that the that yeah, the customer yeah. Or consumer is getting. So, so that, that's the concept. We're at the uh, early stages yet. So so
0: but on the on the last bit about the kind of third party validation from this crowdsourcing. So uh, so some research that I again I can't attribute to anybody, but it does come out of that David Hoffeld book, The Science of Selling, where he did an amazing amount of research for that book, like a thousands upon thousands of. Uh, studies and research groups were were put together, one of the things that he says is that um, on your website or in your presentations, if you talk about how good you are, and you are good, that's one thing, 67 or 70, whatever percent plus have people look towards what the market says about you? Mm-hmm. What what your, yeah. those testimonials that we all do it.
1: I mean, we all go on to tip advisor or, or reviews, but or back reviews, whatever. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, I think you're right. Validation from other consumers and it, it's 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 heavy. But I think also using um, other consumers to help solve your you, you'll trust other not more so, but there certainly is an element of trust as another user that if they can solve your problem, you yeah. will actually go to them. And that's not to say that you completely disconnect from the organisation. I think the other thing that's happening, and it's more of a, in the tech space, if we look at the proliferation of, of, of devices mm. in the home or in the business, and how connected all of those devices are, so it's your, you know, your phone talks to your camera on your front door, talks to your fridge, talks to your TV, internet talks browser. to your, yeah, they, they're much fond of the internet of things. Mm. So. Issues that arise in those, not so much in the product or service that an organisation has sold to you, but maybe upstream five different devices or downstream five different devices. Um, And the people best placed to help diagnose these problems are the people in the real world using them. Not necessarily the the provider of the product or service. So I can't get my Netflix working because my Wi-Fi router that's back and it's not connected to my Virgin Media Hub that are some other. So where is the problem? Is it one of those devices? If you go talk to... And they go, well, your hub's working fine. That's right. But I still, as right. a customer journey, all I want to do is watch the movie. Absolutely. And I can't get to watch it. So yeah. So if you can get other people uh, who have had similar issues to help solve that problem, there's a potential from a customer service because my screen uh quite useful.
0: And, and do you see the way, um, without giving too many tips and tricks away, but knowing what was required to take speech to market, different markets, different customers, different needs? Well, technology has changed uh, you know do you see that taking uh, Sodeo to market is going to be done differently or are you going to use the same best practices? Um, um, before?
1: It's inter- I mean technology approaches market strategy absolutely have changed we have a lot more in the, the digital marketing side of things we have a lot more in terms of reaching a wider consumer or customer base even though they're enterprise customers we have a lot Better mechanisms of doing. I think the underlying principles are still the same in terms of understanding a market, understanding the buyer, understanding what you're selling, understanding your value proposition, and getting in front of them. So I think the core principle is the same. I would say how you go about executing that core principle is there's different ways of doing it. And I, 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 you know, hindsight, looking at some of the things we did in speech term, I think "Mm, we probably should have done that differently in terms of our go to market execution. Um, And I think it's, it's again another a piece of advice but I don't want to be as um, sound as uh, magnanimous as that but certainly understanding your business model and how that operates and the cost underlying that because if you're trying to sell enterprise software with an enterprise sales team through a partner model yeah. your margins start to get sliced rapidly yeah. Yeah. Uh, and it was one of the things that I wouldn't say it held us back but there was a certain degree of it, it, um, You know, every time you go out to hire an enterprise sales guy in the tech space it's Hundreds of thousands, right. and it takes them twelve months to, yeah. to, to add value in the sense of closing deals because of seal cycles, etc So that's a high cost. So I think getting that cost of seal down in some shape, form, or fashion is certainly one of the things I'll be focusing this time around.
0: Yeah, interesting. Yeah, my experience of third party, you know, Toronto is very, very. People in Toronto are very quick to talk about engineering and specifically PowerScreen. The PowerScreen model was pretty much one that helped them grow exponentially and globally. Take a man from Island Mm -hmm. and has got a job and throw him in really hungry into Mississippi and see how he gets on. He typically gets on very well. Obviously, the intellect is required to sell some excavating equipment and some uh, still very high-level tech, but you need those soft skills. But ideally, you'd want to be taking somebody that has got the same DNA as you intellectually, Buy into the brand and then dump the out well I think that's
1: back. the. I mean that that is. I think that will always be the case, and that's a, a critical part. It's back to the, You know the. One of the things I said previously around that level of empowerment. The reality is, when you bring in you scale and grow your company, you bring other people in. They won't get it. They won't understand it. Um, and you have to actually and you have to have enough confidence in yourself that you're able to say, well they'll make mistakes but and this is the the Graham Henry thing where leaders become teachers where you can then try and direct them and it's not easy and I've made many mistakes doing that as well but I think that's that's where the power of success will lead to growth Um, the better you can do that um, and the quicker you can do that then the more you're going to grow so I, I think it's how do you take the dna that's inside you and not replicate it because you can't but empower that to others
0: absolutely yeah um although we're coming very close to 45 minutes on the on the chat it's been very very interesting genuinely and i have a load more questions that, that i'm probably not going to ask you properly <laughs> just, like <laughs> a little, just
1: like that last one <laughs> we'll, 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 we'll keep on the hard ones and will um no, so
0: no, no, this one, yeah, that one, That uh, what advice would you give to your younger self? I completely shot that one. Um, so if you were, um, so Northern Ireland is, is a, uh, the north of Ireland is a very much a, uh, you know, there's a lot of focus on tech. Um, you know, what advice would you give to somebody that's coming out of Armagh, going to Queen's and landing into a place like this? What's, what two, What two pieces of advice would you give them? No, can't go any earlier than coming straight to university and start up so you can't say go earlier. Yeah. So what, what would you say to them in terms of advice
1: um, if you're going to start up? Oh, that's a, a good question. I suppose certainly one of the things and um, it's do it with speed. I don't mean um, do stupid things with speed but try and be as procrastination as it is a great killer of any startup. So, um, you know, we'll wait and see, or we'll do it tomorrow. So try and be as um, quickly as possible in terms of of what you're doing. Um, that's certainly one thing. Um, I, I suppose confidence. Have confidence in your own your own ability. Um, certainly, anybody coming out of Armagh or, or any part of of this part of the world. And I've seen it. I've seen people in the states. I've seen people all over the world. And you know. And in the tech world, when you put people from here up against them, you blow them away. So the the knowledge they have, the skill set. So even someone totally fresh out of university, that you know, have confidence. The one thing I think we suffer in this part of the world is go to the US. I mean, that, that they're hyper confident about what they can do, yeah. and usually under deliver. I think we are the reverse here. You know, we are hyper conservative about what we can do and and over deliver. There's a balance in there somewhere. Um, and I think so. Have confidence in yourself and uh, execute with as much speed as you possibly can. Okay. Good
0: man. All oh, right, listen, thank, really, thanks very much. I really, really enjoyed that. Um, I'm going to wish you all the best with Sandeo and maybe in six months'
1: time we'll get you on again. Absolutely. That's love it, that, Paul. Thank yeah. you very much. Appreciate it.